In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. So we've had two weeks now without Bible study, so God willing, we're going to continue where we left off. We had finished um, the first section of 2 Corinthians chapter 11, so I'm going to read um, up till, uh, I think, verse 13 is where we left off, and then we can continue um, from there. So we'll just review from the beginning of the chapter. So he says, oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly, and indeed you do bear with me. Remember, we were talking about St. Paul is defending himself uh, to the Corinthians and against um, the false teachers who were trying to gain influence of the people and were attacking St. Paul and his apostleship. And so he's here kind of like speaking about his authenticity as an apostle as it relates to the suffering that he's had to endure for the sake of his ministry, essentially saying that if he was not a genuine apostle, and he did not truly love the Corinthians, then he would not be enduring all these things that he has uh, endured uh, because he has no personal gain in this. Like he doesn't gain anything for himself. Maybe the other false teachers, they gain uh, recognition or praise or, or money or whatever the case might be. But for him, he gains nothing. For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. So we spoke also about how the in, in the church, the doctrine that we teach is passed down from generation to generation, and it is the original gospel message that was preached um, by Christ himself. So St. Paul here is giving them a test. How is it that we can tell if a certain doctrine is true or not? We say, well, if it is a different than the original gospel, if you receive a different spirit which you have not received or a different gospel which you have not accepted, then you should not put up with it. You should um, you should question it. You should doubt it. For I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am untrained in speech, yet I am not in knowledge. But we have been thoroughly manifested among you in all things. Did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge? Do you remember what he was talking about here with the free of charge? Good. Tense. Tense, yeah. Okay, good. Yeah, so he's definitely speaking about um, the idea that he is not accepting any money from the Corinthian church. Um, and the reason he didn't want to accept money is because he didn't want to be a burden on them, and he wanted to ensure that he, he was doing this for the right reasons. He wasn't doing it for financial gain or personal gain, right? 
So what is it, though, that the people were accusing him of? They were saying the current some of the Corinthians, they were saying to him, well, um, you know, you spend all your time, you know, working and making money for yourself instead of being 100 percent committed to the ministry. So the thing that he was doing specifically as a way to show them that he was not wanting to be a burden as an act of love toward them. Some of them were taking it as the opposite. Like, you know, you're just distracted by your own stuff and you're not really interested in, you know, coming in, you know? So it's like, again, no matter what you do, um, people will criticize you. And so he goes on, he says, I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to minister to you. So there were other churches that he was accepting donations from them, right? Because he didn't have that sensitivity with them as much as he had here with the Corinthians, right? The Corinthians were like a special case here where they had all these problems. So he was treating them very sensitively. And he's saying, you know, essentially, I took the money that I received from the other churches and I spent them to minister to you, right? And when I was present, yeah. It's like a, like metaphorically speaking, like as though he is taking the money because, you know, when you, when you, when you donate, like when a church donates, right, to the church, or people from the church donate to the church, they expect that that money is going to be used to serve their community, right? So it's like here, he's saying, the money that I received from, let's say, the Philippian church, instead of spending it on serving the Philippians, instead I'm using it to serve you, right? And when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one. For what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. And in everything, I kept myself from being burdensome to you, and so I will keep myself. As the truth of Christ is in me, no one shall stop me from this boasting in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows. But what I do, I will also continue to do, that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. So he's speaking again about the false teachers and not wanting to give them an opportunity to boast and an opportunity to gain influence on the people for, for the wrong reasons. For such are false prophets, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, so this is where we left off, and no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Here this is um, one of the most... Uh, powerful and deceptive ways that Satan operates, right? If Satan were to come to us in the form of Satan, we would all flee from him, right? Because he is ugly. He is dangerous. He looks like we don't want to mess with him. Like we don't, we don't, and we won't believe what he says because he will look like Satan. And all of us know that Satan's bad. So you see Satan, even little kids, you know, if they see Satan and they see someone who takes the form of Satan as they understand him to look, they will run away from him, right? They won't approach him. But instead, if he takes the form of an angel, if he takes the form of something holy and something good, and he acts that way, and very deceptively and with subterfuge and with, you know, deceptive words and with smooth speaking, he like tells you kind of what you want to hear and you begins to gain your trust, okay? And in this way, he is able to convince. So why is it that these false teachers were popular? It's because they told people what they wanted to hear. Maybe St. Paul is writing these letters to them, rebuking them for the way that they acted, what they did, what you should do, what you shouldn't do, so on. Whereas these false teachers are coming and essentially telling them already what they're doing is fine. Or, you know, They're telling them what they want to hear. And so this same principle, the same practice that Satan uses, even here that St. Paul is speaking about, is definitely 
what he continues to use today and to use for each one of us and to use for the church as a whole and to use for society as a whole. You know, how often now do people in society come to us and they tell us what should be done? And this thing that should be done, why is it that should be done? It should be done because it's the moral thing to do. It is the righteous thing to do. Even though this thing that they're telling us to do is contrary to God's law, but it is righteous and good and moral and ethical, and we should do it. And it's promoting love and it's promoting goodness. And so anyone who does not do this thing is considered bad and wrong and racist and whatever the case. Okay. So, so when you take something, right, and you twist it to turn it into something different and to try to present it as something good and beneficial, right, this is what the way that Satan operates, right? So when it says he transforms himself into angel of light, this is, this is exactly what he means. And when he came to Adam and Eve, you know, he didn't take the form of an angel, but he took the form of something other than his own nature, something other than who he was. Because again, if he came in his own form, everyone would reject him, right? But he came in the form of something else. He came in the form of an animal, right? And so when he spoke to Eve, she didn't immediately become repulsed at his sight or immediately run away from who he was simply because of who he is. And that's something that we need to develop in ourselves is that we need to flee from anything that is coming from a source other than God regardless of how it sounds, because in the ears of Eve, you know, as she began to think about, meditate, contemplate on the things that the, the, the serpent said, it started to sound good to her because he is very talented at getting us to be convinced and to go after him, to go after what it is that he wants us to do. So if we think ourselves that we can reason with Satan, we definitely we cannot reason with Satan. He will find some means to trick us, to fool us, to entice us with something that we want, and then we will fall. So this is why, like in the scripture, when it says, flee the devil, flee, right? Like run away, like don't, don't consider yourself to be able to stand up against temptation, but flee temptation. You know, like I always think, imagine the example of Joseph the righteous when he is there in the house of Potiphar with his wife, and she is like approaching him and trying to seduce him. He didn't try to sit there and argue with her or to convince. No, she just he just fled. He just ran, right? Even if it meant running away without his garments. So, so again, this is for us as Christians, for us to acknowledge our weakness and to say, you know what? I cannot stand against and, and, and anyone, no matter what the source appears to be, you know, the greatest thing that the devil does is he convinces the world that he doesn't exist, you know? As much as the devil falls into pride and is prideful against God, but he doesn't want any attention. He doesn't want any recognition. He doesn't want anyone to believe his existence is there. And so he has us pointing at other human beings for the reasons for everything. You know, why is it that the world is so bad? Well, it's because of the Republicans or because of the Democrats or because of the Chinese people or because of whatever country or because of every group wants to blame another group. Every person wants to blame another person. You know, and so we don't realize that the ultimate evil, who is the one who is like playing everyone against everyone else, is him, right? And he is the one who transforms himself so that he's hidden. Do you have a question? Does Satan have the power of suggestion in such in a way that like he can 
uh, he can con not really control, but rather like hypnotize someone into do some something that like you know. Because I I know about possession, but like I don't know. Well, possession is one thing, but apart from possession, you know, he has the ability to place thoughts in our mind. So, so I mean, more than suggestion. I mean, when you talk about hypnosis and people putting su suggesting thoughts in people's minds or suggesting ideas, that's something from the outside. Like, no human being can implant a thought in my mind. They can say words, and then I might listen to those words and then begin to think certain things. But the devil can actually put thoughts in our mind, right? Which is something beyond what any human being can do. But but he cannot force us to accept those thoughts. So it is not like a hypnosis in the sense that we are, it is irresistible. It is something that I cannot withstand, that it's like I'm in a trance, I'm been like I'm a zombie kind of thing. No. Like, right, God, God gives us the freedom to choose in all things. He says, What this is life and this is death, choose life. So always there is a choice. Right? Always there is a choice. Now, sometimes we put ourselves um, in a position where we make that choice very hard. And I'll give you an example. Like I, I've used this example before. There's a verse that says that God would not allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear, but always make a means of escape. Right? So, but when you think, what does that mean to make a means of escape? It, it brought to my mind, like the example of, you know, like buildings in like New York and stuff, like apartment buildings that have a fire escape. So what is a fire escape? Like when someone is designing the building and building the building, they try to think ahead and they say, okay, well, there's a possibility there might be a fire. And if there's a fire, we need a way for the people in the building to get out quickly. So we build this set of metal stairs on the outside of the building so that at any time, if people need to, they can climb up the window and go down this fire escape and flee, right? If that fire escape were not there, then there would have be very, very hard to escape, okay? So part of there being a means of escape, you know, you can't say, you know what, I'm going to go to a bad place with bad people, you know, intending to do bad things. And then in that last moment, I'm going to escape. You know, that, that's not going to, there's not going to be any escape. You're going to fall, right? So the idea of having the means of escape is, is something that is built in. So for instance, a person who is trying to pray every day, pursue God every day, partake of the sacraments on a regular basis, do these spiritual activities. This is like building the, the fire escape. It's like building the means of escape so that when temptation comes, I'm ready to fight it. I'm ready to do battle with it. I'm ready to run away from it because I already have like the armor is on, you know, like I already have the armor of God on. So when the enemy comes to attack, I can quickly fight him because I'm prepared as opposed to someone who is not wearing the armor. And the moment that the enemy comes, the first thing he tries to do is put on the armor really quick. And he's gonna he's not gonna he's not gonna escape he's not gonna win right so so when we speak about like overcoming these evil thoughts of the devil overcoming the temptations of the devil it has to be an ongoing spiritual struggle as opposed to being just a one-time event okay we build we are the fire escape is ready and we run the moment that the temptation comes okay saint cyprian he speaks about this and he says what? He invented all kinds of heresy and dissensions. He's speaking about the devil. To corrupt faith and truth and to destroy unity. And in case he fails to keep us in such darkness, he draws us to a new maze of deception. He takes people away from the church 
And when they think that they have approached the light and got away from the night of this world, he covers them deep in a new darkness of which they are unaware. See how oftentimes when people leave what is good, they think they do so for righteous reasons. You know, how often do people leave the church maybe and say, you know what, this church is full of a bunch of hypocrites, you know, and you know, I don't want to be in such a place. It's like, okay, you know, but when you're going away from the church, you're putting yourself in greater danger, right? Maybe a person thinks they are doing something for a, for a righteous motive, for a righteous reason, but it's actually a deception. Because when the devil has us in that place, then he can easily destroy us. And actually, this is true even about the spiritual life. You know, sometimes our goal in the spiritual life is not really holiness, but it's about emotionality, emotionalism. So let me give you an example. Sometimes we believe that a prayer that is accepted by God, when we go and we stand and we pray, how do we test if this prayer is heard by God and accepted by God? Is because we feel very emotional, because I feel very warm feelings, because I feel very like passionate, and I feel like, you know, maybe I cry and I, and I feel good, right? And I walk out saying, you know, that is a good prayer. You know, that was an effective prayer. God heard my prayer. And another prayer where maybe we pray and we feel none of those things and we feel kind of cold and then we walk out of that prayer feeling unsatisfied with that prayer, okay? But is the result of prayer emotion? I mean, is that, is that the measure of a successful prayer is how I feel after I pray? The, the output, the result of effective prayer should be holiness, not emotion. I mean, you can, emotion is good. I mean, if we want, if we want emotion, great. But that's not the, that's not the thing to look for, right? How do I know if God is answering my prayer? If I go to God and I say, God, break the bonds of sin, break the bonds of sin in me, and then over time I see that God is working and He's breaking the bonds of sin, and He's helping me to fight temptation, and He's helping me to forgive my enemies, and He's helping me to grow in virtue, and He's helping me to get over bad habits and addictions and then I can say, look, God has answered my prayer. Even if after each individual prayer that I pray, I still walk out feeling, okay, you know, I still feel normal. I don't, I don't you know, there was no huge, like, emotional event that happened, right? But over a long period of time, God works in me. That is the difference between spirituality and emotion. Spirituality does not have to have emotion with it to that strong, you know, that strong kind of emotion. Yes, there can be emotion. And, it, and emotion is nice, okay? But we should not use emotion as the measure of spirituality. So how can the devil use this? The devil can allow us to have all kinds of emotion. He can allow us to feel as though we are growing spiritually because of the strong emotional feelings that we have. And because we have these strong emotional feelings, I begin to imagine myself to be a very spiritual person. And because I'm a very spiritual person who has very powerful prayers, whom God and me are connected, like super connected in my own mind, then I begin to dictate to other people what spirituality should look like. And when I see other people not doing what I think should be done, I, I, I consider myself to be an authority. Now, because I am so strong spiritually, consider myself to be an authority, and I go and I dictate, and oftentimes this is how this happens. And then people become very uh, like upset, maybe because people don't listen to their ideas or don't implement what they want. And so they end up leaving the church. You know, th there was a story that I said one time about a monk who 
um, you know, he, he would be seeing visions in his cell when he was praying that he would see visions of angels and visions of Christ and all these things to the point where he stopped attending liturgy because when it came time for liturgy, he would be actually be in the midst of these visions. And so his father of confession from the monastery would come and he would tell him, you didn't see a church today. It's like, well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm having these visions and I'm seeing all these things and the Lord Christ is here with me in the cell. And uh, so his father of confession told him, no, you have to come and attend liturgy. And so the devil put all of these thoughts in his mind because these were not actually real visions. This was actually the devil. These were demonic visions. Okay. And, and he put in his mind this feeling that he was righteous and he started to think to himself, you know what? My father confession, he's jealous of me. He wishes that he had the visions that I had. He wishes he could see what I see. And that's why he keeps telling me to come to the liturgy when I'm here doing this. Eventually these visions led this man thinking he was following angels and anchorites to go and to jump off the roof of the monastery and he died so so the 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 and the reason he did that is because these these visions they told him come and be like a monk in the wilderness with us and be among the anchorites who like god like you know transports them from place to place thinking that he was so righteous right so um so it's important to be anchored right one of the ways that here satan transforms himself as an angel of light he can convince us that our thoughts are the true and righteous thoughts. And when somebody stands against us and says, no, this is not right, what you're doing, we refuse to accept. Although, so St. Cyprian, he, he continues. He says, although these false teachers do not abide in the gospel or to the system and law of Christ, they claim to be in the light through the deceptive schemes of the enemy about whom the apostle says that he transforms himself to an angel of light and adorns his ministers as ministers of righteousness, right? The, the, the people, take this off. The people that are, are ministry, who is it that ministers are the ministers of the devil? Who is a minister of the devil? He, is it just the demons? People who are deceived, right? It doesn't have to be people who go and worship Satan. You know, it's not like just people that go and worship Satan in like a satanic temple that these people are the ministers of evil. No, God uses those who are deceived and those who are ignorant and those who are living in darkness, right? They're using them. And that could even be people from the church. You know, like in the, in the book of Revelation, in the last days, it says what? That there will be people who fall away even from among the church, even from the elect, right? That, that when the Antichrist himself come, there, comes, there will be people who are, the, who are the believers that will believe him. They will go after him. Why? Even though Christ told us very clearly what to expect about the Antichrist. And he told us what will happen and what will not happen. And he said, when he comes, do not go after him. But because there are people who care more about the emotion and they care more about the moment rather than the doctrine, right, then they will go after him. So, for instance, when, when, we, when we consider, let's say you, somebody comes here to 77084 zip code and this man is, um, is, you know, performing miracles and he's raising people from the dead and he's dressed in a toga, 
you know, just to make sure it's more authentic, right? And he says that he's Jesus, and he's doing all these real miracles. How, how hard or how easy will it be for us to believe that he is actually Jesus? You know, our senses tell us, well, maybe this is him because he's doing things that are impossible. People go after miracles. In the minds of people, miracles means truth. If, if, if I see someone doing a miracle, then I follow this person. This person cannot do a miracle except if he is from God. This is what people think. But it's not because the devil does miracles. And the ministers of evil do miracles, right? When we speak about the occult, for instance, the occult is miracles. It's real, right? It's something supernatural, and it's evil. So just because somebody does miracles doesn't mean that they are authentic. doesn't mean that they're from God. So the question then is, when we are faced with a situation like that, what is our response, and what do we base our response on? If I base it on my senses, and my feelings, well, maybe my feelings are just like, wow, this is, I'm shocked, I'm amazed at the things that I see. And my senses are telling me this is real, and maybe it is real, okay? But my mind should tell me, no, no, no. What is it that the Lord has already said to us when it comes to something like this? Well, he said, well, do not go after him. This way, do not go after him because he is not real. He is not from God. He is from the devil. So that is an example, where, again, where, where Satan transforms himself as an angel of light. And how is it that we would not follow him? It's not going to be because of what we see necessarily. It's because of what we know, right? Because of what we know, because of what we believe is true, because God already told it to us of what is true. So he goes on then, St. Cyprian. He says what? They call the night day, death, salvation, despair, hope, treason, faithfulness, antichrist, Christ, and show the truth in a deceptive way. This is exactly what they do. They take the night and they call it day. And they convince people that the night is the day. And they convince people that death is actually salvation. You know, this is how deceptive Satan is. He can take one thing and make you believe it's the exact opposite. And we see this totally in our, in, our, in, our, in our society. We see it in the media. We see it. one thing is clear. Like you look at it and you say, this is clear. This is what it is. But they come and they, 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 they find a way to convince you that it's the opposite of what it is. Okay? In a deceptive way. This is how it happens, oh brethren, when we do not go back to the fountain of the truth, when we do not look up to the head and do not follow the teaching that comes from heaven. Exactly what I was saying before. Right. If we rely only on what people are saying, on the buzz, on what my friends are saying, on the way that I feel, on, you know, all this stuff, then it's so easy to be deceived. Right. I remember a long time ago, back when, you know, I don't know, maybe I was in my 20s or something. And I was serving in the in one of the Sunday school classes at St. Mary's, and there was this rap video came out about this guy saying, "What I'm spiritual but not religious." I don't know if some of you remember this. Jesus hates religion. Yeah. Yeah, something like that, right? Jesus greater than religion. And and he made yeah, and he made a, this rap video about this, and every all the high school kids like they like almost universally, they were like so shaken in their faith because of this rap video that this guy made to the point where you know abuna had to make a meeting about the video 
And there were so many kids came to attend this meeting that literally they had to sit in the hallway because there were so many people that came. Like this is the same room where they have the Bible study on a weekly basis that maybe five people come. And when it came time for this, literally there was no place to sit or stand or like there, it was like unbelievable. Why? Because people's faith was so shaken by this one guy making a rap video saying that, you know, spirituality and religion and God hates religion. And uh, like, again, it's deception, right? We shouldn't be so emotionally shaken anytime something happens, you know? And sometimes people, when they are trying to evangelize, let's say to someone, when they're talking to someone who is not Christian about Christianity, and that person will come and say something, they'll ask a question, say, well, if what you're saying is true, then how come the Bible says this here and it says this here? Or, or they'll ask some kind of critical question, a, a good question. And the person, if they don't know the answer, sometimes they will be shaken themselves. I don't know. Maybe you're right. Like maybe that what you're saying is true. Like even if they're not saying that, but inside themselves, they're concerned, right? So whenever we're faced with something that's challenging our faith or whenever we're faced with something that's causing us or causing a large group of people, because it often happens when there's a large group, when there's a, when all of my peers, you know, or a lot of them are, are going after something, it's like a strong influence on me to go after the same thing. So this is when we have to stop and think, okay, is what's happening make sense? Like, is, what does God say about what's happening? Does it make sense or does it not make sense? Is it Satan actually who's doing this, even though it sounds appealing, even though it sounds good? Is it actually Satan who transforms himself into an angel of light or is it actually God himself? Yes. They were questioning this large following that Christ had gotten. Like, where do we draw that line between being discerning and then being the Pharisees where we also miss Christ? So, so when you say, be, so explain that to me. So like, when you, when you say the Pharisees, in what way the Pharisees? Like, they were also, like, very skeptical of Christ and all of his things because it kind of get, went against the grain, I would say, of what they were doing, what they were teaching. So how do we discern, like, evil from good? And Good. then not fall into what the Pharisees did. So what is it that the Pharisees did? The Pharisees, and actually Christ accused them of this. He told them, you have created your own law, right? And you are forcing people to follow your law, not the law of God. So what the Pharisees, if the Pharisees actually went to the scripture, right, the doctrine, and they looked at the prophecies, and they looked at everything, then they could have believed that this is actually Christ. The reason they didn't believe him is because they didn't want to believe him. They didn't want him to be the Messiah. They felt threatened by him. They felt like if he has the influence of the people, then we will have no place anymore ourselves, right? That's even when they were discussing with themselves, what should we do? And they said, you know what? He's going to take our place and he'll take our place among the Romans. So there was a lot of politics in it because the, the Romans um, needed the Pharisees and the Sadducees, because the Romans wanted peace in Israel, right? They didn't want the Israelites because Israel was a Roman province, okay? So, so they paid taxes to Rome, and in exchange, Rome allowed them to, um, to, to practice their faith, okay? But what they wanted, they didn't want revolt. And the, the prefect who would be assigned over Israel, 
he wanted there to be peace. Because if there was war, if there was dissension, if there was rebellion against Rome, then he would be in trouble with the emperor. So they recruited the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And their job, or part of their job in front of the Romans, was to keep the people under control. Right? So the Romans and the Pharisees had a relationship together. Okay? And they just wanted... So, so, so the Pharisees, all they cared about was the power that they had. Right? So if Jesus were the Messiah... What is going to happen? It's going to throw everything upside down because now the Pharisees aren't going to have any authority. Everyone's going to follow the Messiah, okay, and, and they're gone, right? So they didn't ever from day one have the right mentality or attitude toward him. If they really looked, and, and again, you could, you could apply the same thing. Like um, they were deceived by the devil through what? Through their own passion, through their own jealousy, through their own desire for power that instead of seeing him for who he was, instead of accepting him for who he was, then um, instead they they were blinded to that and they they didn't accept him. So again, it goes back to what is the truth, what is the what is the doctrine, what is what is it that we believe, and we apply that to every situation. Yeah. I have a couple comments here. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness whose end will be according to their works, right? If the devil transforms himself into an angel of light, then all of his supporters, his followers, and like we said, those who are deceived will apply the same principle, right? And oftentimes they will apply this principle, this principle of deception, because they believe that it is in the greater good. Meaning what? If someone wants to convince you of something, then they will very easily lie to you to convince it to convince you of it because they believe that it is for the greater good. You know, if I want you to do something that I believe is for the good, it's for it's the right thing to do, then I will lie to you. I'll do whatever it is that it takes to get you to do that because in the end I feel like I'm actually moral and righteous because I'm getting you to do what is right. Certainly that is not the way that Christ behaved. Let me give you an example. In John chapter 6, Christ is telling his disciples that um, unless they eat of his body and drink of his blood, that they will have no life in them. So it's communion. He's telling them about communion. But his disciples heard this and they rejected this. They said, how can we eat of your body? You know, and actually many of them left. Many of them left. So Christ, you know, you could have imagined him to say, okay, um, he, he wants the people to take communion because it is his life-giving mystery. And he doesn't want them to leave him from being his disciples. So he's just not going to tell them the truth. Right? You could imagine you could imagine a leader, in whatever context leader, he doesn't want his people to stop following him. And he wants for them what he believes is right. So he's going to lie to them in order to achieve it. And actually, in our society and in politics, happens every day. Right? But that's not what Jesus did. You know, he told them the truth, even if it offended them, even if they, they fled from him, even if no matter what happened, he, he, the truth is, is important, okay? So here, the ministers of, of good, the ministers of righteousness are always going to say the truth, even if the truth offends people, even if the truth causes the people to leave. It is the truth. You know, like many of the readings 
that we have in our lectionary in the Katamaros in the church. Um, you know, sometimes I think to myself, you know, like if a person were to walk into the church and certain readings are being read, what is it that they would think about us? Like certain selections, certain parts of the Bible that we read, like woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, or we speak about like condemnation to hell or those kinds of things. Obviously, not all the readings are about that. But when you walk into the church on a certain day and you have a reading like that, it's like very like in your face. Like this is this is what we believe. The Catholic Church um, in their lectionary. They also had readings that spoke about condemnation and judgment and like all of that stuff. But back in 1969, they changed their lectionary because they felt like some of these readings are offensive and they didn't want, they wanted to be more universal, more universally appealing so that people would not leave the church because there was like an exodus of people leaving the Catholic church and they wanted people to stay. So they made many changes, right? And one of the changes that they made is they changed the lectionary. Right. So they change the readings that they read in order to focus on the things that are more positive. Right. And not to read those what we would consider negative parts of Scripture. Of course, in our church, we read everything, you know, like we read the positive, we read the negative, we read we read everything. Right. Because we take it all. You know, this is the message. This is this is the message that God has delivered to us. So it is not up to me to say, you know what, we're just going to avoid talking about this topic, you know. This topic is not politically correct. We're not going to talk about it. This topic is going to bother people. We're not going to talk about it because we are doing people a disservice. God delivered this gospel to us, delivered the Bible to us, right? Inspired by the Holy Spirit. So we as believers will read it, we'll understand it, we'll live it, we'll preach it, right? This is the words of life, okay? So it is for us to declare the truth regardless of how people receive it. Now, it doesn't mean that we can't be smart about how we talk to people and to be tactful about how we talk to people. But in the end, we can't avoid the fundamental message, right? This is the message. And this is not my message, right? This is God's message. This is the message delivered by God for us to live by and to preach to the world. This is, again, the difference between the ministers of truth and the ministers of lies. The ministers of lies, they just want to manipulate you to do what is their desired outcome. The ministers of the truth, they tell you the truth even if a, not a single person believes it. Because what matters is the truth more than the number of followers. I say again, let no one think me a fool. If otherwise, at least receive me as a fool, that I, may also, that I also may boast a little. What I speak, I speak not according to the Lord, but as it were foolishly in this confidence of boasting. Seeing that many boast according to the flesh, I also will boast. So again, he is in this process of defending himself. And so he's saying things which people would consider to be boastful statements, almost arrogant statements, right? But he is, he's defending this and he's saying, I'm not saying this as a boasting. I'm saying it because I have to, because you have essentially, you, you've given me no choice but to say these things. And you accept this from so many other people, so I will say it. I will say it about myself, okay? He is saying this. For you put up with fools gladly, since you yourselves are wise. He's being sarcastic here, okay? He's saying, he's saying you, you put up with all these other foolish people, these false teachers. You, you, you praise them and you put up with them um, like these fools gladly because you are so wise. Like you are so wise in the way that you discern right from wrong. So he's, he's being sarcastic here. 
For you put up with it if one brings you to, into bondage, if one devours you, if one takes from you, if one exalts himself, if one strikes you on the face. Okay? So he's saying, you go after these false teachers, even if they um, mistreat you in this way, even if they lie to you, even if they deceive you, if they bring you into the bondage of sin, and yet you're still going after them. You know? Um, so, so, again, this is like like idol worship, like people who worship certain people or certain lifestyles or certain mentalities. And we ask, okay, what has this gotten you? Have you, are, are, have you, have you, is your life better because you go after these certain philosophies or these certain people, or have you been more enslaved, you know, by, by them? So, so here, um, some of the people that he could be referring to um, and the false teachers he could be referring to were the, the Judaizers. So the Judaizers were, uh, Jews converted to Christianity that believed that you still had to keep the law of Moses as it concerns keeping the Sabbath day, um, the laws of circumcision, and the, the works of the law of the Old Testament, and so on. And so at the early church, there was a big um, controversy on whether the law of Moses still had to be practiced uh, in Christianity or not. And so some of the false teachers were the ones that were preaching uh, essentially Judaism as a part of Christianity, okay, that you have to be circumcised and so on. And so here when he's speaking about people who are taking away your liberty, essentially, people who are telling you that you have to live a certain way, but it's a man-made law. It's not the law of God, right? Back to the Pharisees. The Pharisees had all these laws that the people had to follow that was not coming from God. It was coming from them. To our shame, I say that we were too weak for that. But in whatever anyone is bold, I speak foolishly, I am bold also. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. So now he's like essentially putting his resume out. He's saying, you want to know who is the authentic apostle? You know, you, you want to know the credentials? Okay, I will tell you the credentials, my credentials. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool, I am more in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. You know, St. Paul speaks about all of his journeys and all the things that he encountered on his journeys um, as he traveled the whole world. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. What is 40 stripes minus one? Do you have a question? Yeah. Already. What's the difference between like a Gentile and a Judaizer? I thought they were the same. Right? So a, a Gentile is a non-Jewish person. So you can divide everyone up into either Jew or Gentile, right? So we here are Gentiles. Um, a Judaizer is a Jewish person who converted to Christianity, but still believed that you had to practice the Jewish law as a part of Christianity. So, for instance, in the Old Testament, God required that people be circumcised. In order to be among the people of God, you had to be circumcised. In the New Testament, right, Christ made it clear that circumcision is simply a symbol of baptism. So what's necessary to be among the people of God in the New Testament is baptism, not circumcision. And so circumcision has no spiritual value, okay, in the New Testament. But the Judaizers because they are with the Jewish, with the mindset that we still have to fulfill the law of Moses, still required that Christians be circumcised. Why was that even a big deal? 
among the Jews, it really wasn't because Jews, as a part of their culture, they were used to being circumcised, like that was a normal thing for them. No Jewish person, even a Christian, would kind of balk at the idea of being circumcised. But who would? The Gentiles, right? The Gentiles, all the other people in the world who had never been circumcised, like circumcision was not a part of their culture or religion. Now, in order to say to them, essentially, if you want to be Christian, not only do you have to be baptized, but you also have to be circumcised. It's like a stumbling block. It's like something that people wouldn't want to do. So the church discussed this, and they made it clear that, no, circumcision is not necessary for salvation. You don't have to be, as a Christian, to be circumcised. But there was a group of, of, of people called the Judaizers who kept promoting this idea that these laws of the Old Testament are necessary for salvation in Christianity. Okay? Okay, so what's the 40 stripes minus 1? 39. So what is that? Good. So in the Old Testament, God gave the commandment to the Jews that when you beat someone as a punishment, you cannot beat them more than 40 times. 40 is the maximum. So Again, the, the Jewish mindset is very legalistic, right? So why is it then that they would do 39? Because they're worried that they might miscount. And so if they try to do 40 and they miscounted and they did 41, it would be like condemnation for them, right? So they try to do 39. So if they miscount and they went up to 40, it's okay, all right? So, so here St. Paul is speaking about all the punishments that he received from the Jews because the Jews were very much against him. Remember, he was a Pharisee. He was one of them. And, you know, he, he, was, he was like the right-hand man of the Sanhedrin who were going around persecuting Christians, right, B because, of, because that's what the, the Pharisees wanted. And so for him to convert to Christianity, he was hated by the Jews, the, you know, like, like because he, he is now like their number one enemy. And they tried to kill him, and they tried to punish him all the time. So he, he, he's talking about how much he was punished and how much he was beaten by them three times i was beaten with rods once i was stoned three times i was shipwrecked a night and a day i have been in the deep in journeys often in perils of waters in perils of robbers in perils of my own countrymen in perils of the gentiles in perils in the city in perils in the wilderness in perils in the sea in perils among false brethren right and, and we can actually connect some of these things to other verses that we read in the scripture so for instance in in uh, Acts 16, he was beaten with rods. In Acts 14, he was stoned. In Acts 27, he was shipwrecked. In weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things would come upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. So on top of all the physical sufferings, and on top of all of the exhaustion, and, and self-sacrifice that he made in order for him to carry out his ministry, my deep concern, right? Like what he carried with him and the reason why he did all that he did was his deep concern for all the churches. Like this is the true fatherhood. This is the true pastoral care that St. Paul had for everyone. He had so many reasons to say, I can't. It's too dangerous. 
I will just stay where I am and send letters, you know, and do nothing more. But his his pastoral desire, his pastoral care for them made him to go, even if it means my death, even if it means, you know, my end, that I believe that God has called me for this. And even if I die, and even if I suffer as a part of this ministry, it is the will of God. Because he says, what well, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And he says, what well, the world is as rubbish to me. Like, I don't care about my comfort. I don't care about my things. I don't care about my life, right? All that he cares about is to fulfill the mission that God had given him. So you see his true spirit of fatherhood and his true spirit of obedience to God and love for God and love for his service, right? That even what is on his mind as he is shipwrecked and as he is hungry and as he has beaten and as he has all this, like uh, back in um, when he was stoned, right? In Acts 14, you know, he, he, he's in the city of Lystra and the people stone him. The Jews stoned him. They take him outside of the city. They stone him. And then immediately after he is stoned, he goes right back into the city again. Like there's no, you know, let me move on. You know, these people are dangerous. No, he, he immediately goes back into the city where the people just stoned him. So it tells you something about who he is and the way that he thinks. Um, and he's saying all this again. Why? Because he wants them to see his, his genuineness. You know, he's not gaining anything. If you think that I'm doing this for myself, I, I haven't gained anything for myself personally. Then he goes on and he's now sharing like his emotions. He's sharing not only his experiences, but he's sharing his emotional state. He's saying, who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation, right? He's sharing in his emotions in his ministry. He's sharing in the emotions of his people and the trials of his people. He's sharing in the way that he feels when those people of his um, stumble and fall into temptation and sin that he himself feels like a passion for them. He feels like a desire for their repentance, right? This feeling of indignation, right? Of wanting the repentance of those who fall, right? And this was his, this was his mission during this whole time, okay? St. John Chrysostom says about St. Paul, he says, how could we compare Paul who moans on a daily basis for the sake of every man in this world, for the sake of every race and city, for the sake of every soul, he whose will was more solid than iron and harder than steel, where can we find the words to describe such a blessed spirit? And you can see why God chose him. And you see why God allowed him to write 14 books of the New Testament. You know, when we read the Bible, most of the things we are reading in the New Testament is the writings of St. Paul. You know, so, so he is really um, just a, a wonderful example to all of us. If I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity, right? So St. Paul is not boasting about his successes, you know, like he, he's not boasting. He said, you know what? I went to such a place and there was nobody there, no Christians there. And I began to preach. And after my preaching, so many people believed and I established a church and the church has, you know, a hundred families that are there now. And, you know, like if you notice the things he's boasting about. He's not boasting about his successes. He's not boasting about, you know, the number of people that have been baptized 
or boasting about the number of people who have accepted the faith or the number of people who are willing to be martyred for the faith. He's not boasting about any of the positive outcome of his ministry. What is it that he is boasting? He is boasting about his sufferings, right? Because he considers that his suffering is sharing in the suffering of Christ. And that's what makes his ministry authentic because it is not based on artificial or superficial results. It's, he's, not, he's not fixated on the outcome. He's, he's only thinking about that he has done his part, which is to give up everything for Christ. And Christ, whatever the outcome Christ allows or wants to be or how he works in the hearts of people, this is the work of God. And he it does not even attribute it to himself. His, the proof of his authenticity as an apostle is not because he did miracles. It's not because he preached. It's because he accepted to himself such suffering for the sake of the ministry. And then, you know, the implication is, did the false teachers do that? Like, did the false teachers accept this unto themselves? Are they true and authentic apostles? When, Saint, when Christ spoke to people about the requirements of discipleship of the Lord, he didn't speak to them about, look, come with me and you're going to be great and you're going to perform miracles and everyone's going to be happy with you and, you know, you're going to get a big office. You know, like that, that was at no point in time the message that Christ told people when he said, if you want to be my disciple. Instead, he told them what count the cost, you know, count the cost. Are you able to accept what you should accept to be a disciple? Are you able to sacrifice what is necessary to be a disciple? Right. That is what Christ himself said was necessary for discipleship. And he did not, you know, he did not um, entice them with any reward. There was no reward. There was no like signing bonus. There was no benefit. At no point. The only benefit that was there was union with God, was sharing in the service of God, was implementing the will of God, was accepting the calling of God. That was the reward. You know, when, when God spoke to Abraham in the Old Testament, he told him what? I am your exceedingly great reward. He said that to Abraham. The, the presence of God is the reward. The ministry of God is the reward. The union with God is the reward. Moses, what is it that he was rewarded for all those years of being an arch prophet and leading millions of stubborn people in the desert? He never received a medal. He never received a certificate. He never received anything. The only thing he received was that he would speak to God face to face, that no one else ever had done so, but Moses had done so. And that was his reward. And so for St. Paul, this is his motivation. So when it comes to those who are serving in a difficult service, a service that has a lot of challenges, a lot of setbacks, a lot of struggles, a lot of problems, a lot of conflicts, right? In the end, what is it that we are looking for? Am I looking for there to be no conflict? Am I looking for every service that I do to be 100% successful? Am I looking for praise? Am I looking for the people to be full, you know, everything that I do? Or am I looking for my reward is God. My reward is to do the will of God. If God calls me to a service, simply to do this is enough. Simply to do this is my reward because in this service, God makes himself manifest to me. He makes himself known to me. He makes me to see him, to see the way that he works in a unique and special way as a servant of God and not like any other person. So this is what St. Paul received. This is what St. Paul gloried in 
was that I would allow myself even to go through whatever suffering, because the more of I, the more that I pour myself into the service, the more that I give of myself in the service, the more I am rewarded through the Holy Spirit. The more that the Spirit fills me. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under Aretas, the king, was guarding the city of the Damascenes with a garrison, desiring to arrest me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. He's referring here to events that happened to him um, after his conversion. It's mentioned in Acts chapter 9. Um, and it's another example from the very beginning that kind of shows um, what St. Paul had to endure for his ministry. And if you rewind back to the very first conversation um, that happened between uh, God and Ananias about Paul when he was still Saul, okay? When, when God spoke to Ananias and he told him, go and place your hands on the eyes of Saul so that he would regain his sight. Okay? And it says here in Acts chapter 9, But the Lord said to him, because Ananias was concerned. He said, well, don't you know who this person is? This person is the one who's persecuting your people all over. Are you sure you want me to go to him and put my hands on him so he can regain his sight? This is what God said. He said, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. You know, when you think about that, that's not exactly um, like a motivating thing. You know, like, like if, I, if I go to someone and say, you know, I want you to serve in Sunday school, um, and I will show you how much you must suffer for the sake of the service. I don't think that's going to be motivating for anyone to say, yes, yeah, sign me up for that. That's what I want, right? Because unfortunately, and I'm included in this as well, what we want is comfort. What we want is salvation plus comfort, right? Salvation plus comfort, I'm happy. Give it to me, right? Because we are Americans. So everything to us is about comfort. We want comfort above everything with salvation too, right? But when you add this idea of suffering, then it starts to become questionable, okay? Like, is this really what I want? Why would this be motivating? You know, I always use the example of St. Peter. St. Peter, at the beginning of his ministry, Christ did all these miracles, and he allowed them to catch this miraculous catch of fish, and um, he, he's, he asked St. Peter to use his boat and he did all these things. And after he ca caught this miraculous catch of fish um, and he brought St. Peter brought the fish to shore, he bowed down on his on his knees and he says, Lord, get away from me because I am a sinful man. And he saw the power of God manifested. And then the Lord said to him, follow me. And in that moment, like St. Peter could see this man was a powerful man. And that, that maybe a life with this man would be a life that would be characterized by power, by glory, by accomplishment, by something special. And so he said, I, I will go. And it says what he left his nets, he left his father, he left and he left. He went with Christ. But if you fast forward um, to the end after the resurrection, 
when the Lord is speaking with Christ and he's asked him three times, do you love me? After this conversation, okay, the Lord said to St. Peter, um, when you are young, you went wherever you wanted to go. But when you are old, someone will have to essentially hold your hand and take you where you do not want to go. And then he said to him the exact same words again, follow me. So what happened at the end? At the end, there wasn't a message of glory or of power or of anything. And essentially, then the Bible says what? This was said to signify the kind of death that Peter would die. So he's telling Peter in that moment, essentially in that moment, he is reestablishing him as an apostle because he had denied Christ three times. And now Christ was essentially um, confirming to him that he is still accepted as an apostle when he asked him three times, do you love me? And immediately after this, what does it mean for you to be an apostle, Peter? What does it mean for you to serve me? Well, it means that when you were young, you had freedom, and now you do not. And now I will show you where is it that you will go for my glory. And this was the life of St. Peter. We know and then St. Peter was martyred, and he was martyred being crucified upside down. So if we really want to get past the romanticized version of what does service look like? What does relationship with God look like? The romanticized version is that we're all happy and we have candles all around and we are praising God. Hallelujah. That is the romanticized Christianity. That is not the true Christianity. The true Christianity, and we see it characterized in the life of so many people in Scripture and through the history of the church, it's suffering. Not suffering for no reason. Not self-inflicted suffering. Suffering because anyone who chooses to bring the light of God into the darkness of the world will have to suffer to do it. And it is the suffering itself that allows us to share in the ministry of Christ and the suffering that allows the people to see the authenticity of that message. You know, so many people, they believed in the message of Christianity because they saw all of these martyrs. They saw all these people who were willing to give up their lives for Christ. How many words would it take to convince people? Do we go out into the world and we see that words are ever so convincing? Words are nothing in our, in our life. What words mean nothing anymore? People can say whatever words they want. People don't care about words. People care about action. So if they see me living according to my faith, sacrificing according to my faith, suffering because of my faith, that is a powerful message. That is what brings the message of the gospel. That is what makes the, the, the ministry of St. Paul effective, the ministry of St. Peter effective, and our ministry effective is because we are living according to this faith, not that we are just speaking about it. Speaking about it, again, words are cheap. So St. Paul makes it very clear that this is his lifestyle. This is how he lives because he is a true disciple of Christ, contrary to these other false teachers. That is the end of chapter 11. Um, does anyone have any comments before we conclude? Yes. Uh, encompassing everything that you said um, about the, like how we romanticize um, Christianity and our, our relationship with God and how emotion comes into it. And um, I think I heard once on a, in a sermon about covenantal friendships and so kind of like it's it's kind of like a tangent but like i guess what i'm asking is so since we're not expecting like that 
we're not supposed to expect that type of emotion whenever we're praying we're trying to conversate with god how is it like it's like a big topic but how how is our friendship supposed to look like if if, we're, if we don't expect that emotion from like our relationship with god then like what type of like how are our friendships interactions with people are supposed to be like how are they supposed to feel so i mean when it comes to relationship with people um let's say even let's say a marriage relationship because marriage relationships are the ones that you would think would have uh, the most emotion okay by our nature as humans okay we lose interest in things quickly right we lose interest in things you know like my kids you tell them we're going to get you a such and such gift so excited, so excited, so excited for weeks and weeks until it's time to get the gift. They get it, and two days later, it's on in the corner. They don't care about it anymore because they got used to it. Same thing is with people. You know, maybe there's a person that I really care about, and I I really want to marry this person, um, and I maybe I'm very emotionally drawn to this person. And then after enough time of being with this person, I take for granted this person is just a person there doesn't mean I don't like them. It doesn't mean I hate them or have anything against them. But I certainly don't have the emotions that I had toward them maybe at some point before. So unless we understand this is the reality of us as human beings, then we can think that something is wrong. Like when people, like maybe people who have been married for quite a long time and they say, you know what, we're going to get divorced. Why? Because we don't love each other anymore. What does that mean? We don't have the strong emotions anymore. Okay, of course, you know, you don't have that. And a person who tries to go after every emotional high because they believe that that's the way that life is supposed to be, it's constantly a high of emotion, trying new things, trying thrilling things, because I always want to feel emotion. It's like you're chasing like the wind. You're chasing something that by our very nature, we cannot hold on to it. Okay, That is a difference between being in heaven on earth and being in heaven. Because in heaven, our emotions are sanctified, right? On earth, our emotions are not sanctified. They are corrupted, which means that the things that are good, according to my knowledge, according to my understanding, my heart doesn't necessarily agree with my mind. This is why when we pray, for instance, we know that prayer is good. We understand that with our minds, and we tell ourselves, I will pray. And we stand to pray, and I feel nothing. That's, that's not intended, that's not supposed to be that way. It's supposed to be that my heart follows my mind, not works against my mind. But it should not be that my mind follows my heart because my heart is corrupted, right? So, so um, when it comes to relationships with people, our relationships have to be built on a strong foundation, you know? Like, is this a, a good person? Is this person really a friend to me, right? Um, uh, you know, all of these principles that are necessary in establishing friendship and if i have very strong emotions toward a person or not you know that's not really the main focus because when i tell people who are like considering marriage like the emotions you have toward that person is not the is not the number one thing and emotions can come over time but don't focus on the emotion focus on does this person have the characteristics that are good in a spouse for instance okay don't let the emotions be the main issue because there will be a time, no matter how much emotions you have today, that those emotions are going to gradually go away, you know, at least to a large extent. 
So, so being, we are easily deceived by emotion. And actually, the, the scripture says what the heart is deceitful above all things. Like above all things, the heart is deceitful even more than the devil. The heart is deceitful. So we are so easy to deceive ourselves, right, because of our hearts. So we should always get spiritual guidance about important decisions that we're making. We should think many times, pray often about the things that we're, the decisions that we're making. Am I going after this for the wrong reason? Am I doing something simply because it feels good now, but it's not based on good principles or not? This is how many people go into bad relationships, um, either for marriage or otherwise. They, they, they get caught up with the wrong crowd. It feels good to be with this group of people, but then these group of people end up causing me to fall into, to get me arrested. You know, the same people that I was happy to be with. But I should never have gone after them because if I had rationally considered who they are, their lifestyle, then I shouldn't have ever joined their group. You know what I mean? So I don't know if this is what you're asking, but um, like in, in anything, emotions have to be treated for what they are. They are, they are not purified. They are not sanctified. So they can be helpful. And when they're helpful, great. And when they're not helpful, we don't listen to them. Any other comment? Okay, let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We ask, O God, that you allow your scripture to enter into our heart, to pierce our soul, to teach us, O God, your ways, not only in our minds, in our hearts, in our spirits, but in every way. Help us, O oh God, to commit to following you and to give up, O oh Lord, whatever is necessary, whatever is blocking our path to you, whatever is a stumbling block for us, whatever is a barrier, to put it away from us, O oh Lord, through your spirit and through your strength so that we continue our spiritual walk upward to you. We thank you for your mercy and for your love. We ask, O oh God, that you give us the same spirit of service and the spirit of love that St. Paul had to follow after you, O oh Lord, even if it means great sacrifice. We ask, O oh God, that you make us to be like the one who sold all that he has to buy the field that had the treasure because it was more precious to him than anything else. We thank you, O Lord, for your patience with us. Grant us your peace and grant us to have a passion for service and a passion for you. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, the communion, the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen.